Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put an end to my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. Would you know good, Ann Camp? You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, a.k.a. Bishop Cooper's grandson and the Windy City representative. The baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Because I want to start this episode out with a rest in peace to Rosalind Carter, who was the wife of President Jimmy Carter. She died, leave last week here in Georgia. A humanitarian had been called a steel magnolia. So I just want to send our prayers to her and her family on their loss. Certainly someone who had an impact on of this nation for sure. And anything on that, Chris? No, just definitely sending prayers and support. This is certainly a woman who was a trailblazer. I think defined the kind of modern first lady role in terms of getting involved in policy and politics and having a staff and all that. So shout out and, and prayers. Yeah, for sure. Um, next on a little, well, I don't know if it's a lighter note, but on, on another note, you may have heard, Chris, that the rapper Young Thug, who's a talented young rapper here from Atlanta, is on trial on state RICO charges. That's that's racketeering, basically running a criminal enterprise. The allegations are of murder, drugs, a whole bunch of stuff. And so it's been a really big deal because usually you don't see people get caught up on state RICO. RICO usually uh, comes from a f- federal charge, but Fonnie uh, Willis here in Atlanta brought them up on him and some of the folks in what they're saying was a gang that also served as kind of like a a record label and all that other stuff uh, brought them up on charges. So it's been an interesting back and forth. It took them a long time to actually get a jury. And this trial is just kind of dragged out, but it's getting underway now had opening, you know, had our opening statements. One of the interesting things that happened is that in the opening statement, uh, young thugs attorney, said that thug, the thug in his name and the thug that he he was referring to stood for truly humbled under God. Truly humbled under God. That That's what they're saying thug meant. All right. Now, I, you know, I want to put out there as far as this trial goes, I want I want justice to be done. Right. If he's innocent, then he should be found. And he's already you know, we, we assume that he is innocent. But if he's innocent, then he should be let go. If he's guilty, he should, you know, uh, deal with that as well. One of the issues that popped up, though, is as the prosecutor were giving their opening statement, she said something like one of the things that won't be proven is that he wasn't in a game. I'm very surprised that a prosecutor would say that, because when a prosecutor says that what they're doing is they're shifting the burden. The burden of proof is always on the prosecution. When you shift the burden to the defense or make the jury think the burden has been shifted to the defense. You're asking for trouble. You're asking for a conviction to be overturned. So I'm very surprised as big as this case is that the prosecutor said something like that. Well, the one thing I want to ask you, and we can just cover this quickly. I've seen a lot of folks who are pro social justice really on the set thugger. They call him thugger set thugger free 
perspective, basically saying, hey, let this man go, blah, blah, blah. Now, my question for you is, and again, if he's innocent, he should be let go. But when someone is up against such big charges, murder, drugs, murders of other black men and things of that nature, can you be pro-social justice and always take the stance that people with this sort of profile need to be set free? What are your thoughts on that, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I think you certainly can be pro-social justice. And, you know, if actually, if you are pro-social justice, one of the things that we lose sight of sometimes in this modern moment is the justice part of social justice, right? Justice is a part of social justice. And in a society where people can commit crimes and atrocities and not be held accountable for that is really hard to maintain justice. And so you have to be serious about justice across the board if you're going to be a social justice advocate. So I would probably say that you can't really be an effective social justice advocate and not be advocating for justice to be done in this case. So if if your advocacy is along other sort of systemic lines, like whether this kind of like RICO approach to prosecution is is always the best way to go, you know, I'm open to that type of a thing. But the, on the baseline of just saying, we don't care about prosecuting this case and getting to the bottom of who has been pushing poisonous chemicals into our community, killing people in our community. That, that's part of social justice, in my view. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I think it becomes somewhat of a contradiction to be pro-social justice. But every time someone with a certain profile is charged with something, you're automatically saying, let them go. Not, not on yeah. due process grounds or anything like that. Just because somebody with this profile, I don't want them to go to jail. Well, how do you keep order and how do you really have a just society if that's the position that you take? And I see a lot of entertainers, a lot of you know influencers taking that sort of position, depending on who, and you, this is without the facts. So unless they were there and know everything that was going on, right. maybe that, that'd that be different. Most of them, all of them probably don't have all the facts. The facts are yet to, to come out, but automatically saying a certain type of person should not be prosecuted to me is anti-social justice. Again, we don't want anybody to go to, to jail that hasn't done anything. And we understand the presumption of innocence, and we're going to give Young Thug that too. But I'm not automatically going to say, oh, don't prosecute him, free the guy. And I don't even know what the facts are. And I say I'm pro-social justice. There is an order. It's not just being against government injustice, right? Mm -hmm. It's also being against those who, I mean, this is oppressive. I mean, what this does to certain communities, yeah. think about the, the, the families of the, the men who lost their lives within this conversation. To be pro-justice is more than just being against the government when it's run by people that don't look like you. Yeah. So uh, I, I just thought that's an inter interesting point to make that we don't talk about a whole lot. Yeah. We just don't get to it a whole lot. I talk about it, you know, and when I, when I do talks and stuff and I know we got other stuff, but you can't be so tuned to speaking truth to power that we fail to speak truth to one another. Um, right. Both of those are part of being a real justice advocate in a society. Yeah. And it comes from kind of the idea that one side is always evil. So the establishment, the government, or whoever else is always evil and the people are always good. That's not biblical. Yeah. Right. So if you're truly about justice, then be about justice in general, not just for certain groups. And and the complicated part of, of it is you probably not even for justice for your own group when you got somebody who's who was possibly alleged to be killing people in their own community. Yeah. So I hope, you know, I, I, I go, my heart goes out to the folks that lost their lives. 
I hope justice is done in this situation, whatever it may be. I'm not casting judgment on that or saying I know I know someone is guilty, but I do think we need to let the legal process run its course. And if it everything is done in a fair and just way, then it, to accept the outcome of that. But I want to give a shout out, as always, to our patrons who who are supporting us on Patreon.com slash Church Politics. Thank you for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. We had a, a whole segment on the last episode on the importance of us keeping our independence. And we cannot keep our independence without the people who support the AND campaign and the Church Politics podcast. So thank you for doing that. You should know that the people who actually are patrons on Patreon get uh, premium episodes. So if you want premium episodes, episodes everybody else doesn't hear, we're going to do one today on the migrant crisis in Chicago and how that's being handled. If you want to hear that, you should become a patron, but you should become one just because you appreciate the the content and what we do anyway. If you are watching on YouTube, then I would like you to like and subscribe as we get started. That always helps us with the algorithm and all that stuff. So you know what it is, folks. Grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. Chris, Luke 17, three says, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. In certain circumstances, to rebuke is to love. Mm -hmm. If you're doing it with the right spirit. It can edify the person being corrected and give them a chance to repent and behave differently. And Chris, I want to talk about accountability and forgiveness in the context of racial justice. I fear and I hope I'm wrong, but I fear that the race conversation in the church in some ways has gone backwards. There was a time, maybe a brief moment when I would have said that we had a long way to go within that conversation, but that I thought we were headed in the right direction. Then came Trump worship and just the overall white evangelical response to presidential politics. Then came the racialized violence that we saw during the pandemic. During this time, you saw we, we had brothers and sisters losing their jobs, losing their churches, and even having their reputations just run through the mud because they were speaking against systemic racism and its presence in the church. And I, and I think there's precedent in the Bible for speaking truth to power in that way, but people suffered for doing it, not only suffered from society, they suffered in the church Mm -hmm. for doing that. Right. Then we have this big scare about critical race theory, this big scare about black lives matter where those things are somehow made to be even worse than racism itself, where those things are are somehow made to be worse than the American church's involvement in slavery and its involvement in Jim Crow just about 60 years ago. And we know that everyone who didn't accept the majority church's false narrative became a secret Marxist and they had to be deplatformed and they had to be excommunicated. And this really tore the church apart. Any progress that we were making, a lot of the progress that we were making when it came to the conversation about racial conciliation really just fell off. This moment did a lot of damage to the church internally and a lot of damage to it externally. I think it really hurt the credibility of the church. 
to say we're followers of Jesus, that we're peacemakers, that we're trying to bring healing to society and then not be able to make any progress, make a make enough progress on the race issue really hurt us. And I think it continues to hurt us today. And it hurt a lot of people. Then, understandably, the response from some socially concerned Christians like ourselves was less than faithful. I think on the extremes, but it was probably less rare than we'd like to admit. The response for some, Chris, was was basically deconstruction. Deconstruction of the authority of scripture, deconstruction of the entire faith in some instances. Now, it never made sense to me that I would walk away from the faith because people within the faith weren't following the Bible. Like, I'm not going to say that I'm not going to apply the Bible. I'm not going to follow the Bible any anymore because people who say they're Christians aren't following the Bible. I, I, I don't. I, I've never completely gotten that. But some folks seem to make the decision to stop following Jesus and to start following secular activists and academics. Folks started quoting Robin D'Angelo and Kendi more than they quoted Jesus. Right. I digress, but that's kind of that's kind of how this thing ended up. And that's why I think we're in a really tough spot. And I do think it starts with a lot of, of it does start with how the majority church reacted to some of these racial issues and how they just went along with whatever Trump wanted them to do. Now, in many ways, I think the failure on the conservative side comes down to not wanting to be held accountable, which is ironic because I thought conservatives were all about accountability. But I think a lot of this problem comes from not wanting to be held accountable and benefiting from the country and the church's exploitation of race, but not wanting to face the consequences, not wanting to reckon with the outcome and the hurt that had been caused, wanting to walk away feeling faultless and unindebted. There's also an unwillingness to be vulnerable and an unwillingness to be corrected by anybody else, which, again, is rooted in pride. And I think it's interesting to bring this up. Our friend Brian Loritz, brilliant, brilliant brother, mm-hmm. shared a quote from C.S. Lewis that I really think sp- speaks to this issue. And I think our audience will appreciate this quote. I'm inclined to think that we had better look unflinchingly at the sort of work we have done. Like puppies, we must have our noses rubbed in it. A man now penitent who has once seduced and abandoned a girl and then lost sight of her had better not avert his eyes from the crude realities of the life she may now be living. For the same reason, we ought to read the Psalms that curse the oppressor, read them with fear. Who knows what imprecations of the same sort have been uttered against ourselves? What prayers have red men and black and brown and yellow sent up against us to their gods or sometimes to God himself? All over the earth, the white man's offenses smell to heaven. Massacres, broken treaties, theft, kidnappings, enslavement, deportation, floggings, lynchings, beatings up, rape, insult, mockery, and odious hypocrisy make up that smell. Again, that is C.S. Lewis, the very well-known Christian writer, basically saying that the majority church and white Christians 
really need to take seriously the things they have done. And even if there's a time for forgiveness, not look away, not avert their eyes from the results of some of the things that have happened. Man, Chris, C.S. Lewis has a way of making his point stick. What are your thoughts just on the idea of accountability and forgiveness within the race conversation? Yeah, first off, I want to say that you put this in such a great sort of historical context for the modern church. I often look back to 2018 and the MLK 50 conference. I I paid close attention to it, and it really, to me, was a very, very hopeful moment. And it just seemed to all go downhill from there. But if you can look back at that, I think there at least is something in our really immediate history that we can at least make it our goal to rekindle. And I do think that this quote that Dr. Ritz posted about from C.S. Lewis is really great. And I, I can say to Dr. Loritz as somebody who, you know, I've got the book, I, I looked it up, the quote's there. <laughs> so it is uh, C.S. Lewis. And, you know, I, I like what C.S. Lewis is doing here because I think this is what needs to happen in the conversation, right? This is in a chapter where Lewis is dealing with the the Psalms and, and generally talking about how to engage with the Psalms more broadly. Here, he's particularly looking at how to engage with Psalm chapter 109 and other Psalms that he calls kind of like a Psalm uh, of hatred, right? Uh, and... The question that he asked before this quote is, what good can we find in reading this kind of stuff? Like, what good can you find in reading a psalm that really sounds like David just kind of going off and praying for God to do really terrible things to people? Mm-hmm. Uh, and here's what Lewis says in, in response to his own question. One good, certainly, we have here an uninhibited expression of, of those feelings which oppression and injustice naturally produce. The psalm is a portrait. Under it should be written, this is what you make of a man by ill-treating him. Every injury or oppression is equally a temptation, a temptation to hatred, and in that sense, a seduction. Mm. And when I look at that, you know, my heart says, if we could only have preaching like this in our pulpits, it would begin to advance us again. And I, I think that recovering something of what we saw in 2018 is going to, a lot of that burden is going to rest with the the preachers, the folks who stand in the pulpits. And will you have the courage to do what Lewis does here? Not in this kind of like, I'm just going to preach about politics, social justice, and blah, blah. But if you, if you deal with the Psalms, right? Lewis is not preaching social justice. He's dealing with the Psalms. But if you deal with the Psalms, if you deal with the prophets, if you deal with Jesus and the Gospels, you're always going to keep coming back to this issue of justice and oppression and advocating for the weak, the poor, the least of these. Uh, And if we could have that kind of preaching, as we preach the full counsel of Scripture, it would, I think, begin to turn us in the right direction. But it can't just be in the houses of worship that are filled with people who have been on the receiving end of the maltreatment. 
right? It's, it's too easy to get an amen in that context. And folks who listen to my preaching in the church will tell you that I, I would take this psalm and go in the, the other direction that Lewis explores, which has more to do with the individual treatment of folks than these larger systemic issues. But you have to have the systemic approach too, and that belongs in the pulpit where it's going to produce more of an ouch than an amen. And I know that this works. I, re- I remember I was working at the Bicker Dyke Redevelopment Corporation. We we're doing a, a campaign to get a, a housing set aside, affordable housing set aside in Chicago, an ordinance that would say that one third of new development needs to be set aside for affordable housing. And we were working on this, working on this, couldn't get it through. Mayor Daly was not supporting it. And it was difficult to do it without his support. The Cardinal in the Chicago diocese delivered a homily in which he said something along the lines that affordable housing is a, if not a right, it's a good that most people should have. Uh, And then he said, basically, if there is a Catholic who has it within his or her power to extend that to his neighbor and chooses to withhold it, that Catholic is in violation of the church's social teaching. Hmm. Within three weeks of that homily, Daly was supporting the legislation and wow. we passed it into law. So nobody can say that the, the pulpit has no power, right? Sometimes folks just need to hear folks who have that pulpit say the truth and say it with conviction. That's, that's heavy. That, that means something, man. What people hear from the church matters. And it matters even on political issues. And when we're talking about a conversation about race, there are certain things that need to be heard. And I want to give a shout out to all those who suffered for saying what needed to be said. Now, yeah. does that mean every sermon you preach should be about race? P- please, I hope not. <laughs> that, that, that kind of bugs me, too. But but there are certain things that do do need to be said. And one of the things you find in the race conversation today is like, hey, just get over it. It was a long time ago, which is not as long as people want to act like it was, but yeah. whatever. It was a long time ago. Just let it go. And I think what he's saying is with that, I mean, the example he gives was very good with the man who mistreated a woman. Yeah. Even if you've repented, you still can't avert your eyes to what happened. Mm -hmm. Right. And so understanding it's not about beating people up. And I think some folks that entered in this conversation from the socially conscious, you know, uh, uh, pro social justice point of view, some of them did walk in not really wanting to ever forgive. Not really wanting a solution. That's not everybody. I don't think that's how we walked into it. But you do have to be aware of that and that you do have to give people a chance. But for for there to have been such a big evil that hurt so many people, even if you repented of it, you can't look away. The consequences are still there. And what has happened still has to be dealt with. And I think that's a part of the whole conversation about accountability. Anything else on that, Chris? Yeah, I, I think you highlight something that's that's really important. I, th- I think that if you deal with the psalm, if your reading of a psalm like Psalm 109 is just, amen, God, do the same terrible things to my enemies, then you've misread the psalm and right. you've misappropriated the truth. I think Lewis deals rightly with the psalm in showing that it is a portrait of what comes of a of a person when you mistreat them. Uh, And so that should be the reading. And it should be, everybody should come with a goal of reconciliation. I do think this, this discussion about accountability 
does give a slightly different motivation in the church for reconciliation ministry and the need for fellowship across those boundaries, not just racial, uh, but also economic, because you're talking about accountability and repentance and, and not averting one's eyes and being concerned with what happens to people when they suffer these types of things. And I think that my motivation for participating in these types of reconciliation type moments is that is is one thing to approach this sort of uh, sort of penitent spirit in a general way, my group of people and that other group of people, you know, but it's something completely different to be able in that time of prayer when you're dealing with confession and repentance and even intercession to be able to actually call to mind the face of a brother or sister who may have been tempted, as Lewis would say in this way, tempted to hatred, tempted to to deconstruction. I mean, you and I didn't go that route, but I have I have a good deal of, of sympathy and heartache for those who did because while the response is is wrong to sort of walk away from the faith and walk away from the Lord because of somebody else's unfaithfulness, the hurt is real. That's real. And so that's real. It, it should it should drive us to our knees. I think, you know, that's what, what Lewis is trying to get at. Yep. No, I, I agree. So we'd love to hear what y'all got to say about that. Remember too, when you be if you become a patron, you can actually send us questions and we'll answer you some of your questions on the premium those premium episodes. So if you want to know something, you want to hear something we have to say, you want to go back and forth with us on something you disagree with or something you think we got wrong, become a patron again. That is patreon.com slash church politics. We will be right back on the church politics podcast. And we are back on the church politics podcast with justin gibney and the right reverend christopher butler from what i'm hearing chris republicans in congress have demanded that any aid for ukraine and israel be coupled with stricter border policies according to politico a growing number of senate democrats appear open to making it harder for immigrants to seek asylum in order to secure republican support for aiding ukraine and israel They are motivated, Politico says, not just by concern for America's embattled allies. They also believe changes are needed to help a migration crisis that is growing more dire and to potentially dull the political sting of border politics in battleground states before the 2024 elections. So if it wasn't enough that this was actually needed to help the dire situation, we know one thing that will always move partisans is the political sting of an upcoming election. So whatever it is, you know, I hope the right thing is done here. But I do want to point out, and we've said it over and over again, that if America needs anything, America needs comprehensive immigration reform. Again, we said that over and over. We said that ad nauseum on this show. And I want to remind you. That the primary reason that we don't have immigration reform is because of Republicans like Ted Cruz, Senator Ted Cruz, who has basically worked diligently to make sure that it was seen as heresy to even discuss serious reform with Democrats. That's what he did. We saw him do it to Marco Rubio and and others. 
And so as we watch people suffer at the border, as we watch cities struggle with how to take care of migrants, I don't want you to forget the role that folks like Ted Cruz played in making sure that we didn't reach a solution. They bear, we just got finished talking about accountability. They bear a good amount of the responsibility for this. Now, I haven't always agreed with some of the rhetoric that we've heard from Democrats when it comes to open borders and stuff like that. But this issue started to be polarizing to this point based on folks who made it their job to pull away from any kind of compromise or solution, bipartisan solution on this issue. Don't forget it, because that's a part of the accountability that we've been talking about. But Chris, what are your thoughts on tying money to Ukraine to stricter border policy? Well, at some level, it's how Congress works, right? Like it's, it's how legislation gets done. It's interesting that this is coming from Republican senators who, as you have said, you know, have often stood in the way of comprehensive immigration reform. But it's also being forced down the throats of Democratic senators who failed to take what I call the priority posture when it comes to comprehensive immigration reform, because uh, especially in the Senate where Democrats have been for a minute now in the majority, even if it is slim, if, if senators on the Democratic side had really taken a stance and said, this is a priority for us, we are going to push for it, then it, it would have been done. So I think what you have here is an opportunity for some bipartisan cooperation on what I think will ultimately be a win-win compromise for both sides, because there there are important parts of the Democratic coalition that need to see some type of changes on this whole asylum issue because the way it's beginning to impact their lives. So I think that this is just where our Congress is. is it's how the legislative process is working. I, I do want to say, though, that I think this moment highlights an important issue for the Democratic Party that I think represents one of the biggest long-term questions for them, which is how do you continue to hold your coalition together? Because one of the things that the article highlights is that the holdouts are the folks who have concerns about how the progressive wing of the party is going to respond to this type of change at the border. And, you know, I, I think that highlights this fact that white, more wealthy progressives and working class people of color have an increasingly divergent set of policy priorities that are rooted in an increasingly divergent uh, sort of view of the world. Here in Chicago, and you know, if folks want to hear, we're going to talk more about this later, so I'm going to hold some of my stuff. But in Chicago, this issue has become a huge issue because folks, people of color in Chicago want changes at the local level and the national level on this asylum question. And there is tension between that community and the progressive community in our city right now. And the Democratic mayor, Brandon Johnson, finds himself caught in the middle of that. And I think there are other issues that follow the same trajectory, whether it be school choice, parents' rights, gender issues, where folks on one side of the coalition are moving in a different direction from the people on the other side of the coalition. Mm -hmm. So if you're a Democrat, maybe the boogeyman that is Donald Trump forces the coalition together for another cycle. But beyond 2024, I think it becomes a real question for the Democratic Party. How do you continue to hold that coalition yeah. together? That's a good question. I mean, and this is my criticism. Somebody might disagree, but I think one of the issues that I have with 
very ideological progressives is they're not known for being practical. And I think what you're seeing in a lot of these urban spaces is the people who actually live in these spaces and don't have the resources to avoid all the things that are going on are making a practical decision. And when you hear a lot of progressives talk about it, like, oh, you guys are acting like the Republicans, you're bringing the hate. It's not even about hate. And the, and it's like they can't understand there's a practical consequence to what's going on. And people are suffering or not getting what they paid for, not getting the services that they need. Right. Because of what's going on, because of your ideological, the ideological position that you've taken. And, and, and these things aren't necessarily separate, but it always irks me when people have made a very practical decision and have taken a position based on practical concerns. And then you bring these, this culture war. Oh, you're just doing this. We got to you know, you're just doing this because you hate immigrants and stop acting like conservatives. And it's like, bro, what are you even talking about? Yeah. I'm talking I'm talking very practically about what's going on next door. Right. Next about door. the crime, about about the resources that, are, that we're losing. And y'all told me that we and here's the thing that, that gets a lot of people. Y'all continue continually tell us we don't have the resources to do this, this and that. Mm-hmm. And then you use these resources to do, do you use these resources when other things pop up that you say you didn't have. And that's what people have to understand. If, if you are in that progressive camp and you listen to this, you know, folks are not listening to like, you know, pick your Republican and like, oh, we can't let these asylum seekers into our city because they're, they're all racist. It's, it's not like getting everybody's a Ted Cruz fan now. Yeah, right. No, nobody it has nothing to do with Ted that's Cruz. That's not it. Right. I, I can tell you, we had my son turn two in beginning of November, and we planned his birthday party. We were doing a sports party at a park district. We wanted the party to go for, I think, two hours or three hours, whatever the time was. But we had to cut it short because the space was already booked. When we were leaving, I found that the space was actually booked by a nonprofit organization who was hosting a play time for the children of uh, asylum seekers who were in that community. And those types of things, it's not about, oh, somebody's going to be racist or something like that. And oh, they're going to come rape everybody in the community. But when you have people experiencing those types of little things in their lives, that's why you're losing your coalition. It's not because everybody's listening to Ted Cruz and Donald Trump. It is because people are experiencing these little things that are creating these little inconveniences in their lives. And don't get me wrong, I'm not against hosting a playtime for uh, the children of asylum seekers. I would be so for that. If they would have came to me and asked me for money to contribute to help with it, I would have been on on board. I'm just using that as a as a, an example of what people are experiencing is not because folks are being brainwashed by somebody who's saying that everybody who comes from a different country is a criminal. And pulling the partisan move of comparing them to the right and all this other stuff to make, you know, to make them change their their position is not going to work either. It's not going right? like to work. Like everybody's seen that happen over and over again. It's, it's, it's hackneyed. It's worn out. It's played out. That's not going to work. So let's address the true issue instead of turning everything into this culture war back and forth. That's really outside of is really even outside of that conversation. So I think you make some really good points. We will see what happens with this. Like we said, we're going to have some more larger conversation about migration, especially in Chicago on our premium episode. But I think it's one that we'll be paying attention to. And some tells me we will be talking about again. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are 
are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, This next one is a little bit frustrating. Chris, as you know, the U.S. Pentagon is the headquarters of the Department of Defense. It includes all three military services, the Army, the Navy and the Air Force. In the 2024 fiscal year, the budget is about eight hundred and seventy seven billion dollars of taxpayer funds. In 2023, it had about one point five trillion budgeted to all of its related components. That's the largest budget of any federal agency. And it has about three point eight trillion in assets. Now, Chris, I am not a defund the military guy at all. I have a lot of respect for the military, have a lot of respect for the men and women who serve in the military. And I'm not naive about how important it is to have a strong military. Okay, but hearing that report. This this report that I'm about to tell you about really upset me. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. According to Reuters, the Pentagon failed an independent audit of its accounting systems for the sixth consecutive year. Now, this audit is required by law. The annual audit assesses the record keeping processes of the Pentagon's weapon systems, military personnel and property around the world. An article in The Intercept, Chris, said that the Pentagon has never passed a single one of the annual audits mandated by Congress in 2017. It has never passed one of the audits. Now, I don't know what job somebody could have where they're responsible for audits and just over any organization where you could keep your job and you and you failed six audits in a row. And again, this is the largest budget of any federal agency. This is a big deal. If we don't know where our weapons, where those assets are going, if we can't say where the money is going, if those processes aren't what they need to be, that needs to be fixed immediately. But it's been going on. So this isn't just one administration. Right. This is a Republican administration. This is a Democratic administration. But the point of the matter is. It looks terrible. It, 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 it either is indicative of some sort of corruption in some parts of it or just a sort of incompetence. But that can't happen at this level with that much money at stake. 
Chris, what are your thoughts? I am, like you, not a defund the military guy. I am a hold military spending accountable guy. And maybe that there might be reason to cut some of that. I am, though, dubious of whether auditing the Pentagon is the way to get at this. Like, I I certainly agree that, like, a person wouldn't be able to stay in their job if you, you know, failed whatever is your review process over and over again. You wouldn't be able to do that. But I sort of start to look at this as it comes up year after year, and it, it's just like a story and then it falls away. I start to look at it sort of the way that I look at it, look at kind of like the, the whole budget deficit conversation. And I, I look at the Department of Defense, you know, they got over 3 million people just in the DOD. The military spending is almost 4% of GDP. This is a massive, massive thing to to audit like that. And maybe we could be spending our time on better questions, more specific questions about where specific military spending is going, about the particular contractors that we use and what money is flowing them in particular, diving in, in in a more granular way. It almost feels to me like this whole audit idea is like when you raise the reparations question, you know, somebody says, well, we're going to make a committee to study that. It gets you stuck in this process of of doing the audit instead of actually answering any of the the real tough questions. Yeah. And I would say this. So certainly there are other questions and maybe more important questions that need to be asked and answered. That doesn't take away from the need of an institution like the Pentagon to be able to pass an audit. So is the audit the end all and be all and all questions in there? Absolutely not. But it is a part, I think it's a fair part of the process Mm -hmm. and they should be able to pass an audit. What we do from there and what other questions need to be asked. I don't, I don't think those things are mutually exclusive, but, but to your point, there's a larger, there's a larger problem and, the audit shouldn't be used as an answer to that larger problem. So I, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. I'm just, this is just something that we, we shouldn't have to see. When yeah. you talk about government, when you talk about government being used smartly, these are the type of things people point to, uh, even though most of the people who are not pro government are, are, are pro right. Pentagon, yeah. which I get, but it still, it still has to be held accountable. I mean, this, this cannot move forward in this way any longer. Changes need to be made, and we need to get this together. It would be great to see the Pentagon pass an audit, but one, that wouldn't solve any of the problems, and I do get Well, the transparency might, though, right? Like, I mean... The the transparency can open the door to solving problems, but some of the problems can begin to get worked on, and I guess this is my point. Like, some of the problems can begin to be worked on before the audit is passed, and... You all, at least I almost get the sense that there is something like I, the best parallel that I can do is the we're going to set a committee on it when you bring a difficult question to a government body. It locks you in this process where now we're focused on getting the Pentagon to pass an audit, which is going to be, you know, it's going to take 15 years for them to get to uh, pass an audit. And as much as it's frustrating, it is, there's always going to be a little bit of plenty of people will be able to see some legitimacy in 
you know, saying, you know, this legislation was passed in 2017. Uh, so it's going to take us at least in like 2027 to get everything together, update our counting systems and do you all this type fair? of stuff. I don't, but I think, oh, okay. I think when the military stands up and says, trust us, we need to do this, you know, in the spirit of keeping a strong defense. And then they are able to say that 3 million people in the Department of Defense. Our budget is 4% of the But you should have been keeping good records even before the audit. You know what I'm saying? Like the audit doesn't mean, oh, now all of a sudden we have to have. We apologize, right? Like we apologize. We've already heard that. Like we apologize. Uh, I think this year's statement was it wasn't the progress that that we would have liked to have seen. But it just it feels to me like this is a great way for people in Congress and throughout government to slow walk more difficult conversations about military spending. I hear you. I hear you. If, if we use this alone, it's insufficient. And I think we can both agree on that. And I think we can both agree they need to find a way to get their stuff in order because this is is not good. All For right. Sure. So 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 we agree on that. I mean, it, it's a tough conversation we have to have, especially with the amount of money. You know, a lot of scrutiny has come on how much money we are sending to other places. Mm-hmm. We get that. When you have that level of scrutiny. You've gotta, you've gotta have your stuff in order so yeah. so people are are seeing that it's being used in the right way, and we're just not seeing that, man. So I think it just adds on to the distrust. It adds on to people really saying, "Hey, there's something up here, and we're not we're not getting what we're bargaining for, and our money isn't being used properly." Well, Chris, as always, man, it is a pleasure to be on here with you. We're gonna go ahead and jump on this premium episode and get get deeper into it again, guys. It's giving season. It's the holiday season. We need your help to stay independent. We love what we're doing. We love serving the body of Christ. There's so much more we can do. But again, we need you to help us out. So think about giving. You can go to andcampaign.org and give, or you can go to our Patreon and give. Thank you for all you do. You know what it is, Ann Camp. There's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. Well, I'll let you. Take care. Dear Lord.